What's up, everybody? My name is Tony Hope, and you're listening to the Hear Me Roar podcast, a sports show where I run my mouth about all things sports. And today, you already know what it is. I'm back at Georgia State University in room N278, and I am bringing y'all another iteration of the Hear Me Roar podcast. Y'all going to get tired of hearing me say that exact same intro. But that's just how it is. We consistent over here every week, every Tuesday, just like I said hope everybody's having a great day. I know I am, even though I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm ready for my big, big, big event that I'm having on this Friday that I will inform y'all about at the end of this show. But without any further ado, I have so much to talk about today. I'm talking about UFC 285. This is the big pay-per-view card that was headlined by John Jones versus Cyril Gunn that happened last Saturday. I'm going to talk about Derek Carr being a New Orleans Saint. We'll talk about John Moran and his idiocy. A lot to talk about, so let's dive right into it. First off, I'm going to start off with the big pay-per-view card that I just mentioned earlier. UFC 285 took place at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. Headlined by John Jones versus Cyril Gunn. That was John Jones' first return back to the cage in over three years of inactivity. Uh, Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko was the co-main event. We also had some other big names on the card, such as Shafkai Rachmat and Bo Nickel made his debut. Um, I watched most of the card. It was a it was a entertaining card, top to bottom. Um, I was I was glad that I was able to catch the early prelims because I just found out about a new fighter that I will be following and keeping up uh, keeping up with. Ian Gary, he had an impressive victory on the early prelims of USC 285 against Song Kanan. <clears throat> Already coughing. I usually do that later on in the episode. Uh, <laughs> Ian Gary, Irish fighter, young man, 25 years old, I believe. Uh, there's a picture of him with Conor McGregor years ago when Conor was in his prime and the two-division champ, and that was when Ian was probably like 17 years old. And now he's fighting in the same promotion under him and possibly will be fighting on the same card as him later on this year, which I think is very cool. But uh, he, Ian Gary survived the knockdown late in the first round uh, by Song Kanan, but turned it around and beat Song up enough for a TKO victory in the third. Um, he is the next big UFC prospect in my eyes. He has very clean striking. He has, he, He's tough as bricks. Definitely due to his age, but just that also that mentality to not let a late first round knockdown break your spirit. Um, I've never been knocked down in a fight. I've never been close to it. Maybe in practice, I've been uh, I've been rocked a couple times. But after you get caught with a hard shot, especially like you know late in rounds, it can kind of turn like your uh, a switch in your brain. Like you have. Two ways of going about it. You can either call it an anomaly or, you know, like, oh, he caught me. Let me, you know, let me keep my defense sound. Let me stay in my range. Let me get, let me do what got me to the dance. Because Ian Gary was winning most of that first round until that knockdown came. When that knockdown came, that's when, you know, you throw it up in the air. It's like, well, you know, what you're going to look at? The damage that Song Kanan did with that one strike? Or you can look at the totality of the round for the judge's perspective. Um, or if that happens, you can look at it or some fighters look at it like, yo, I just felt this man's power. 
this man can hit hard. And it can kind of break your will, break your spirit or uh, more so. Like, okay, damn, this man hits hard. Or I was right there about to win, and I just, I just got caught with that one thing, and that could just, mm, that could just gave that round away just like that. And that could just replay in your mind, replay in your mind. So as you're going back to your corner, as you're coming back up, you're thinking about it, overthinking about getting caught with something like that again. You start moving backwards more than you were before. You start uh, becoming a little more timid with your strikes because you don't want to get countered. So, but Ian Gary took that first route. He just wiped it off the slate. You know, it happened. Hands up, move in. Don't let that happen again, which is what you're supposed to do. And that's why that that was just a great sign to see from a a, a prospect that is building a brand behind his name. He had very clean striking. It was enjoyable to watch. And I expect him to continue to move up on the card in uh, future UFC events. He said he's not hurt. He wants to fight again very soon. So, look, it's March. Let's get him on International Fight Week. You know, let's get him on a, on a big-name event in July. Let's do it. I'm here for it. Ian Gary, congratulations. You have a new fan in me. I'm definitely going to be keeping up with you. And my track record has been pretty, pretty, pretty good when it comes to um, – when it comes to fighters that I'm becoming fans of, Aaron Blanchfield won her last fight. Uh, let me see. Drikus, I forgot how to say his name. Drikus Duplessis. I know how to say his last name, just not his first. He won his last fight at UFC 285 as well. Um, he beat Derek Brunson in a weird matchup, but not notable enough for me to talk about it, but... Hey, don't let, I talked about him on this podcast before on the last UFC uh, recap. Anytime I become a new fan of a fighter, they've won their next fight. So just to put that in mind, if y'all ever want to, if y'all are betting individuals, if you hear me say that you have, that a fighter has a new fan in me, bet on them in their next fight. Guarantee you're going to cash out. I don't care if they're an underdog or an overdog. Watch. Next, uh, Cody Garbrandt. He was on. He was the last fight on the prelims, I believe. He beat Trevin Jones by unanimous decision in an unimpressive win, in my opinion. But it was much needed, nonetheless. Uh, he went one and four in his last five fights up to that point. It wasn't the most, you know. He 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 looked cool, calm, and collected. He wasn't out there trying to brawl. He wasn't out there trying to keep up with his opponent like he was in his other losses. Um, like I said, he went one and four in his last five fights. He's, this is a former bantamweight champion. So it's it's good to see him win. But if I'm going to, if I'm being honest, it just wasn't as impressive as like, oh, it wasn't like a win that says like, oh, Cody Garbrandt is back. Like, yeah, that was a great win. We can start, you know, moving him back into the bantamweight contender uh picture. I don't think so. That last round was very you know, he 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 weathered the storm. Trevin Jones got him a couple times. He started picking it up a little more in the third round. But it was a lot of moving, a lot of defense, a lot of clinch, not really working offensively. So that's why I was a little uninspired by his victory. But it was a win nonetheless. You can't take that from him. It was much needed. He said that after that victory, that he his passion and his fuel for fighting is rejuvenated. So... That's great to hear from a fighter. Like, I don't, you know, what my opinion on it doesn't matter. As long as he won and and 
and he wants to continue moving, like you know, recapturing that gold that 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 chasing that dragon that he was once at the top of. So, congratulations to Cody Garbrandt. Uh, on to the main card of the show, Bo Nickel, a col- all a uh, 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 great high level. Star collegiate wrestler was the first fight of the main card, and there was plenty of buzz behind his name. Um, like I said, he was a star collegiate wrestler at the let me check what's what's um university. I believe it's like Iowa or something. I'm not. No, I am so cap <laughs> Penn State. I don't watch college wrestling, but I knew he was very, very, very skilled while he was in college at Penn State. Um, He decided to take the jump into the world of mixed martial arts. And after an impressive two wins on Dana White's contender series, he earned a contract with the UFC. And his fight against veteran fighter Jamie Pickett last Saturday was his UFC debut. He made his UFC debut on the main card of a of a of a pay per view. That is crazy to say. The main card is like, just think about it. Cody Garbrandt, a former champion, was on the prelims. Was on the he was on the undercard of this same event that Bo Nickel tipped off the uh, main card as. So that's very impressive, or, or that just shows the amount of hype behind his name. That shows the the I guess the potential that Dana White and the matchmakers see in him, and it paid dividends. He he submitted uh, Jamie Pickett in the first round via an arm triangle that took forever to submit Pickett, but his victory came with some controversy. I will I must say. Bo's takedown that led to the finishing submission was a result of what looked like an illegal low blow. Um, he had him pressed up against the fence. He was working for a knee pick, and uh, he had his shoulder working to uh, Jamie Pickett's chest. Jamie Pickett had his legs spread apart a little bit. Bo Nickel looked like he was trying to shoot a knee. He was trying to throw a knee at Jamie's inside thigh, but it went right up the middle, and it looked like it connected on the cup, you could obviously see Jamie Pickett grimace and his legs were closed, you know, symbolizing like, man, I just got hit in the nuts. And let me tell you, I've been kneading the nuts countless of times, the hardest of which being in actual fights where, you know, you're, you're, that intensity is up. In practice, you know, if, if it grazes, okay, if you get caught with one, it's fine because you're not going too hard. But in a fight... Where you're trying to hurt your opponent, whether intentional or not. I don't believe it was intentional by Bo Nickel, by the way. But those hurt. Takes all the air out of you. It starts to become difficult to breathe. Your stomach starts to hurt. It's not the most, you know, that's why they give you five minutes to uh, 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 get yourself together. Like, that's not something that you can just shake off immediately. Uh, And right after he... uh, Right after it looked like the knee landed, that's when the takedown came. Like, Jane Pickett did a good job defending Bo's initial takedown. They were pressed up against the cage. 
But after that uh, alleged legal knee, Jamie Pickett believed it was illegal. Um, he actually appealed that he, I think he's appealing his loss, trying to get it turned into a no contest because of the knee. It should have been a, well, I guess he's under belief that if that didn't happen, the fight would have gone differently, which I agree with because if you look at the video, it's on Twitter, it's on YouTube, you can rewatch the fight everywhere. You know, the evidence is there. I'm not going to call, Jane Pick is a vet. I don't think he would do something dirty. I don't think he would do something uh, shady to, not let somebody take him down. If you get kneed in the nuts, you get kneed in the nuts. But at the same time, Bo Nickel, I don't believe he's a dirty fighter. It's just one of those things where the referee didn't catch it. It happened. You know, I don't think they're going to overturn the victory, though. I don't think they're going to turn into a no contest. Uh, but regardless, that was a great win by Bo Nickel. Joe Rogan brought up a great point after his victory. Now that Bo Nickel definitively won his debut via submission on the biggest stage of his career thus far, the jumping competition is going to get stiffer. You are going to have fighters gunning for you now. I believe he is a welterweight, or not a welterweight, a middleweight. I don't think that it would be advised to throw him into the mix with anyone in the top 15 now. But his next fight is going to be someone that's going to give him a, a much more of a challenge than Jamie Pickett. And, and that's interesting to say. It's interesting for me to say that because if that knee indeed was uh, an illegal blow that was missed by the referee, who knows how that fight could have gone? It was in the first round. It took place near you know the beginning stage of the first round. Uh, after he got taken down, the submission attempt was probably the longest Thing in the in the whole fight, like they were on the ground for at least a good minute and a half with Jamie in the uh, arm triangle, just trying to work work it in properly to submit him. Uh, we didn't get to see any stand up striking from him. We didn't get to see how he faced adversity. So there's a lot of questions still remain about his uh, his fight game. But I must admit, the sky is the limit for Bo. You know, strong wrestlers have proven to be extremely difficult to beat, especially when they develop a stand-up game. Kamara Usman, when Habib was able to uh, uh, become confident on the feet. There was a time in that Conor McGregor fight, Habib versus McGregor, where Habib wanted to strike. You know, they had so much bad blood. I believe in, a, in that third round, Habib wanted to stand up on the feet and fight Conor McGregor in his fight. So that just goes to show that if you look at all the dominant champions of the UFC, Islam Mashev, <laughs> come on now, the lightweight, the current lightweight champion, uh, uh, an amazing wrestler with high-level striking. These fighters are proved to be difficult to beat the higher and higher and higher you go up in the rankings. So if Bo Nickel can get some more fights under his belt, if he can face those challenges, if he can work his, firstly work his jiu-jitsu because it took him extremely long to make Bo, uh, not Bo, to make Jamie Pickett tap out from that arm triangle because he didn't lock it in properly. But if he can get a solid base with striking, some good boxing, 
it's going to be, I, I believe that Bo Nickel will be an extremely tough challenge for anyone in that middleweight division. Because that wrestling, that doesn't leave you. Like, come on, like he is a, a, a world-class wrestler. That does not leave you when you transition to MMA. It, it becomes instinctual. But next, another big fight, another fight that I enjoy, another fighter that I am rooting for, another fighter that is on my radar heavily, probably at the forefront of fighters I'm watching. Shafkat Rachmanov is UFC's newest welterweight contender. A very, he had a very impressive victory against Jeff Neal. The most impressive of his 17 straight wins. He is 17-0. He submitted Neal in the third round via standing rear naked choke. A, a, a submission that we don't get to see too often, but is always enjoyable to see. Is there something about seeing another man strangle another grown man unconscious while they're on the feet? It's just like some street fight stuff. Shavkat looked like a damn Terminator in the cage with Neil. He was always pressing forward. He ate some huge shots. The biggest when I rewatched the fight last night, uh, in the third round, there was a three-strike combo highlighted by a nasty left hook that wobbled Shavkat early in the third round. Jeff Neal, he was putting it on in that in the beginning of the third round. Especially that combo. He went like a, a two, three, two. He went two. Left hook up close and went right over top with a, 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 a right hand to follow. Man, talking about that had Shavkat shook. That's probably the hardest he's been hitting the UFC. But he, he 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 wobbled, regained his composure, tried to clinch to you know uh, uh, regain his bearings. It worked, separated, and he went right back at it. He systematically broke Jeff down. With constant pressure and precise striking. Like I said, a damn Terminator. I believe Shafkat is so far ahead of his contemporaries that throwing him in the mix with a top five world to weight is not far-fetched at all. He called out Kobe Covington after his fight. I love to see that, but I just don't know what Kobe Covington is doing. It's like he if, he, if, he's, if he's not fighting for a belt, he's going to cherry-pick his, his opponents. And I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm trying to say he's ducking people, but because I have respect for Kobe Covington. He's one of the better fighters in that division. He's been one of the better fighters in the promotion. But, you know, we're not going to just let you hold up the division when you're not even a champion. Put your ranking on the line. Well, he's like the number two uh, welterweight, number two, number three welterweight, one of them. Come on. Fight Shafkat. That's a good fight. Especially if you're supposed to be a top welterweight. Let Shafkat go against a top welterweight. Throw him in there. Throw him in the fire. Just like they did uh, um, Hamzat. When he fought uh, Gilbert Burns. Throw him in the fire. Like he, like Shafkat is advanced for his where he's at in his UFC career. He beat Jeff Neal last Saturday. He beat Neil Magny on the in his last in the fight before that. Let's see him against high level competition because I know he can keep up. He's a future welterweight champion, which is crazy to say because we know how tough that division is. 
Leon Edwards, Kamara Usman, who's about who those two are going to be doing their third fight in uh, next month on the next pay per view, which is in two weeks, I believe. Right? I know I'm not tripping. I believe it's in two weeks. Ninety-eight percent serious. <laughs> now I'm over here questioning myself. See what I see. Uh, see if I what I saw was correct um, on the when they were talking about the upcoming UFC events on the pay per view last Saturday. Regardless, Leon Edwards, Kamara Usman, you still got Gilbert Burns in there. You got Colby Covington in there. It is a tough division, but I believe Shavkat can keep up with them boys. Give him a fight against Colby Covington. Give him a fight against a top contender. That's all I'm asking. You know, I know Gilbert Byrne versus Jorge Masvidal is about to occur in Miami very soon. I'm picking Gilbert Burns to win that. So, I don't know. Throw Gilbert Byrne versus Shavkat in there? Maybe. Maybe Gilbert Burns earns a title shot, depending on his win. I don't know. I'm not a matchmaker. But I want Shavkat to go against a top five Ranked fighter in that division I just believe that is how far ahead he is Of everyone else in that division Everyone ranked below him Even those ranked in a couple spots above him I believe he's like ranked 9 He's in, he's like His skill set is just that versatile His body style is just that intriguing He's long with incredible durability He has great stamina He has great pace He is extremely and ultra focused Every time he's in the cage there's not a moment in in the, in the octagon where I've seen him have a lapse in judgment. I haven't seen him have a lapse in, in, in focus, a lapse in thinking. Everything that he does in the cage is just systematic. It's calculated. It's always going forward. Hands up. Get in close. Hit him with some sharp knees. Get him with the one-two. Throw your, your teeps in there. He had, the, he had a couple of head kicks that grazed Jeff Neal. Very close that if they landed clean, would have been an amazing knockout. But that goes to show Jeff Neal's veteran savvy. He fought hard. Kudos to both fighters for being tough beyond human belief and providing us with a superb fight. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a great matchup. My favorite fight of the night. Um, and like I said, I want to see Shavkat in the fire because I know he can handle it. So he he... I'm, I'm waiting on him. Any, as soon as I hear his fight is announced, tuning into it, making sure I block out whatever I'm doing to make sure I watch that. Because I promise you, he will be a welterweight champion in the near future. In the near future. I'm, I don't know about 2023 just because of how interesting Kamar Usman versus Leon Edwards is going to be. I want to see what Kobe Covington does. But at the earliest, late 2023, and at the earliest... Uh, 2024, Shavkat will be a welterweight champion. I promise you that. So y'all bookmark this episode. Y'all bookmark where I said this around 23 minutes. The co-main event of the night was Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko. And Grasso pulled off a beautiful upset against Shevchenko to become the new women's flyweight champion. That was another great fight. I enjoyed that thoroughly as well. It was a fight that I expected Valentina to win. I believe I said that on the last podcast because I'm just so used to Valentina's uh, 
level of dominance that we've seen. Uh, her her world class striking. I'm just so used to it that it was almost a not an a, a afterthought, but because I I you can never go into a fight thinking yeah he's just going to demolish him, especially when you get into these uh, championship fights. Like right now, the the UFC is so ultra talented that on any given night, any man can beat another man. Any woman can beat the other woman standing across from her in the cage. So, but I will say that Alexa Grasso was rightfully the underdog. Um, but it didn't matter in that fight. It didn't look like she was an underdog. Her stand-up was very sound, which was expected due to her strong boxing. Um, in fact, it was her boxing that commanded respect from Valentina and had her become grapple-heavy after she was rocked by a nasty punch early in the fight. It went four rounds until before Grasso got the submission victory. But during, those, during the course of those four rounds, Grasso struggled to defend Valentina's wrestling, resulting in her being taken down four times out of her six attempts. But every time, you know, Grasso showed resolve. She didn't give up any submission attempts. She didn't give up any, any dangerous and precarious position. It was just a matter of stopping the takedown. If she could stop the takedown, then she would be able to work with that. Uh, Cause so, like I said, Valentina was was she was winning the fight during the course of the four rounds. Her wrestling was there. The control time was there. Her striking was there as well. But in the sport of mixed martial arts, in, in combat sports, period, all it takes is one mistake to change the entire tide of a fight. We've seen it when Anderson Silva got knocked out against Chris Weidman. We sit, we, we've seen it when Kamar Usman got knocked out by Leon Edwards at UFC 278. One mistake is all it takes. For Anderson Silva, he was he was showboating too much. Chin right up in the air, hands right down at his side, moving straight back. Chris Weidman just kind of stepped in deep with a left hook. I will never forget it. Stepped in deep with a left hook, clipped him right on the chin, knocked him out cold. And just like that, a historic championship reign brought to an end due to a, a, one mistake. Kamara Usman versus Leon Edwards. Fifth round. Kamara Usman dominating the fight up to that point. Dominating the fight. I think he was up on the scorecards. Four to one. He slipped a punch. That Leon Edwards, he, he set up a kick with the punch. He just threw that little, little left hand out there. Kamara Usman slipped it a little too far to his right. And slipped right into Leon Edwards' head kick. One mistake is all it takes. And Valentina Shevchenko is the latest champion to make a mistake that costed her everything. In the fourth round, she threw a spinning back kick that missed the mark. And Grasso pounced into action to capitalize. She sees Valentina's bat with like a little more than a minute left. And worked in a rear naked chokehold that made her half of Shevchenko's face turn pale white and the other half beat red. It was stark to look at. 
That's how it, it wasn't even under the chin fully. It was more wrapped around the bottom of Shevchenko's mouth and her chin. And it was just cranking her neck. Grasso was just cranking Valentina's neck. Like I said, half her, the bottom half of her face was pale white. The blood circulation was cut off in that area of her face. And the, and the rest of her face was red as a beat, red as a stoplight, red as a stop sign, everything. Any type of, 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 of comparison you can find, that's how red it was. Like, and, and it was so swift and sudden, like how Alexa Grasso just took Valentina's back after she missed that spinning back kick. It was, it was surreal to see. There was a video that came out right after the fight that literally showed Alexa Grasso and her camp working on the exact same thing. Moves out the way of the back kick and immediately takes control of the back. Immediately. Like there was no time for Valentina to even spin around before she already had Grasso on her back. Like she locked up that choke so quickly. Valentina had zero time to react. Zero time to, to, to reposition herself. And in a post-fight interview, Grasso said that, yes, yeah, she knows that that's what Valentina likes to do. She likes to throw spinning kicks. And that is the danger when you throw those kicks. I like throwing spinning back kicks. That's the only spinning thing I do. Because it's just a great way of catching your opponent off guard and, and generating some great torque, like a lot of torque and aiming it right, in, especially in the midsection of your opponent. If that gets through, it knocks all the wind out of him. Aim it for the kidney, and you're dropping them. Easy. So it, it's, that's one of those things, like, when you get to a professional level, when you watching film is so important because you train for stuff like that. The two main, the, the two, the main event and co-main event, both ways of finishes came from stuff that they trained in this exact fight camp. I'll talk about John Jones in one sec. But congratulations to Alexa Grasso. That is now three champions in the UFC that hail from the country of Mexico. Brandon Moreno in the flyweight division. Yair Rodriguez is the interim bantamweight champion or featherweight. Interim featherweight champion. And Alexa Grasso is the undisputed UFC women's flyweight champion. So Mexico, Mexico's on top right now. I must say, Mexico is on top right now. It was the Russia and Dagestan in that little area right there, but right now it's Russia. It was Africa with Francis Ngannou, Kamaru Usman, and Israel Adesanya. Now it's Mexico. I love seeing like just where the 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 balance of power is in relation to champions of the world. Whether it's Brazil or it hasn't been America recently, but whether it's Brazil or Russia or um, Africa, whether it was or now it's Mexico. I just love seeing. It's very interesting to see. Like you know, this is where the competition is at. This is where the best fighters are from, Mexico. This is where the best fighters are from, America. This is where the best fighters are from, Russia or Brazil or blah, blah, blah. I love seeing it. It's very fun to see. But on to the main event. The event everybody's been waiting for me to talk about. The event that everybody was waiting to watch. 
John Jones versus Cyril Gaon to become the new heavyweight champion of the UFC. The prize title of all of fighting, in all of fighting. Whether it's boxing or mixed martial arts, everyone knows who the heavyweight champion of the world is in any type of discipline. That is the most, I'll say, sexy title to accomplish. Because if you're, you're, you're fighting against monsters, John Jones, a monster. Cyril Gaon, a monster. But John Jones came out on top. In his return to the octagon, in over three years, he fought one of the more dangerous heavyweights in a weight class above what he is used to fighting in, in a weight class that he has never fought in before. And he choked Cyril Gaon out in mere minutes. It was surreal seeing him back in the cage after so long. Like, he has the aura of a legend. And if you know what I'm talking about when I say that. When you watch, when you watch LeBron James... Break Korean scoring record. Anytime you watch a LeBron James game, it's like when you see him on the court, it's like, man, I don't know how many of these games I have left, whether it's injury, whether it's his age. So every time I watch him, it's just like, man, we're watching a legend. We're watching a like we're we're watching somebody who is doing what they do at a level that no one else has been able to reach. When Conor McGregor was at his peak. When he became the first double champ in UFC's history. That whole run. That was just. It was surreal to watch. It felt like a movie. Watching Anderson Silva. You know. There's just certain things where where you just. Appreciate the greatness while it's there. And it just makes you get goosebumps. It makes you feel. Jittery, like, man, this man is legit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it, that's just what it was. That's the feeling I got when I watched John Jones uh, last Saturday. But on to the actual fight itself. The ring rust definitely showed during the brief striking exchange Gon and Jones had. But as soon as John Jones laid his hands on Gon, his instinctual wrestling kicked in. Like I said earlier when I was talking about Bo Nickel, That wrestling doesn't leave you. I don't care how long you've been away from the sport. I don't care how long that you you you've been how long you've been training. If you wrestled for more than about I say if you wrestled for more than three years, that what you learned during that time frame is not gonna leave you. I still know solid wrestling techniques, and I haven't wrestled since at least 2017, 2018. Not seriously. I still work, you know, when I train MMA or when I'm I'm wrestling with my brother. I still work tech. I, you know, I still go. But there's certain techniques that you just don't lose. I still know how to get legitimate takedowns against MMA fighters. Legitimate takedowns against current wrestlers. That's what happened when John Jones got his hands on Cheryl Gunn. He said it after the pro fight interview, he said that he felt a little goofy on the feet, that his striking wasn't, you know, it wasn't there yet. This is his first fight in a, in a long time. 
three years at a different weight class. So it didn't, it, yeah, it didn't look the most sexy like we thought it was going to be as far as the kickboxing goes. But look, John Jones looked like a natural after he he uh, got his hands on Cyril Gunn. John Jones controlled the pace the entire fight, had Gunn's back against the cage while they were on the feet, and he was firmly controlling the center of the octagon. And after Jones slipped a poorly thrown straight left hand by Gunn, Jones immediately shot in for a body lock, took him down, and pinned Cyril Gunn against the cage. He put his back, he put all of his weight, or he, he shifted all of his weight to his hips and just kind of just let or made Cyril Gunn carry all of that weight. John Jones weighed in at about 247 pounds, 248 pounds, one of those. So just imagine just dragging all of that down onto your opponent. You know, so all of that 248-pound frame was crunched up with Jones working his way into a guillotine choke. It was a very awkward position for Cyril Khan, especially for a man of his stature. <laughs> On the live broadcast, it looked like Jones didn't have the guillotine locked in under the chin, and he was just burning his arms out. But we should have known better that John Jones has, you know, just some of the best fight IQ in UFC history that, if the lock wasn't in, he wasn't going to work for it or that he wasn't going to continue to chase something that wasn't there. But what was so cool about it was that after he locked up the guillotine choke, firstly, it was sunk deep. At another angle, you could see that it was right under the chin. Guy was going to have no other choice but to tap. And that again shows how valuable a strong wrestling base is in MMA. But after the fight, a video showed Henry Cejudo, who was coaching John Jones for this next fight, or for his fight against Cyril Gunn at heavyweight, it showed Henry Cejudo demonstrating the exact same situation that John Jones found himself in during the fight. Cyril Gunn's back against the cage, John Jones with his weight on him, and Henry Cejudo was just like, okay, don't let this position go. Stay on top of him and work. That's exactly what he did, and he got the guillotine choke locked in and submitted Cyril Gunn in the first round within the first couple of minutes of the fight. It seemed as if Cyril Gunn was preparing to drag the fight to the later rounds. He wasn't putting any strikes in Jones's face. He was skirting around the outside of the cage most of the fight. It looked like he was prepared for a Five-round fight. Wait, when I say that, obviously, you're, you're preparing, you're training for one. But the game plan was to drag it out to those later rounds. John Jones has never fought at heavyweight. How would he look in a late-round situation? In a championship-round situation, that was a question leading into the fight. Will he be able to, will his conditioning his and stamina be able to carry his weight? So I think Cyril Ghosn, that's what Cyril Ghosn and his, his, his team was planning to do. Cyril Gunn was not moving forward like we usually see him. He was not putting something in John Jones's face like we normally seen him do with other opponents. So this is a second fight where wrestling was the demise for Cyril Gunn. The first of which being against Francis Ngannou for the undisputed heavyweight championship. And now this one being for the undisputed heavyweight championship. You know? 
So it's just interesting that maybe this is Cyril Gunn's Achilles heel. Once again, John Jones is a masterful wrestler. This is something that he has been doing all his life. But, you know, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. That's twice now. I think that's how the saying goes. Please, I may got that right. I was thinking about J. Cole when I was singing it. I was just like, Lord, please don't let me just embarrass myself on this show by saying that phrase wrong. <laughs> but uh, look, it's the wrestling that get, it's the wrestling grappling that Cyril Gon just doesn't have down. You know, so it, it, it's just interesting to see how this is going to be for his career. I, I have faith that he's going to be able to uh, uh, at least get a solid base. Be able to uh, circumvent this from happening in the future. Only time can tell. You know, as soon as the fight was over, I tweeted that John Jones needs to get the hell out of Vegas. It, it, you know, it, it's just not an environment that John Jones thrives in after the fight. It's been a little over seventy-two hours since the pay-per-view, and there hasn't been any news reports of John Jones getting himself in trouble, which I'm thankful for. And a question I like to present to the audience, a question I was asking myself, a question that everyone was 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 stating, rather a statement that everybody was saying was that that win makes John Jones the goat, makes him the youngest UFC champion of all time. He won a belt in two different divisions. He has no true loss in his professional career. You know, the only mar on his fighting record was a disqualification against Matt Hamill in 2009 due to illegal 12 to six elbows. No, and that was his third UFC fight at that point. Dana White has, you know, long wanted to or contested for that loss to be removed uh, from his record. He's also the longest reigning light heavyweight champion in UFC history. He has the longest win streak in the history of the light heavyweight division. He has the most title defenses in light heavyweight history and tied for the most title defenses in UFC history. So besides that long list of accolades that I can continue to list off, he's also arguably the best martial artist to compete in a UFC. His bag of tricks is deep. Like he, he his, his arsenal of strikes and submissions that he knows and that he is great at getting is ridiculous. He's a freak athlete coupled with that top-of-the-line wrestling and unbelievable striking, elite in the clinch, elite at distance management, elite at picking his opponents apart. He has beaten some of the best ever. DC, Rashad Evans, Rampage Jackson, Shogun Hua, Leota Machida. Hey, do I need to continue to list off these names? You know, it's just it really makes you think what his career could have been if he wasn't his own worst enemy. He's missed so much time due to his own bad decisions. It's just very disappointing just, just to, you know, think back on and reflect. You know, he has a cumulative three years suspended from the UFC. Three years suspended from the UFC stemming from his involvement in a hit and run that injured a pregnant woman and multiple USADA doping violations. Like the hit and run accident, he was... Stripped from the belt, suspended indefinitely. That ended up being six months. The USADA, first time, he got suspended for like 15 months. The second time, 
He was going to be banned for four years. But they, uh, you know, he he appealed that that ban because that was his second time. He appealed it, and then you know, USADA took it into consideration. The I believe I can't remember what athletic state commission it was, but it only got dropped to fifteen months. So that's three years total, though. You know, and not to mention all of the other terrible things that he's done that didn't directly result in a suspension from the UFC. You know, like he after his first fight against Dan Cormier, he tested positive for cocaine, and that was a day. And it, it, that the the story came out a day after being named to Forbes's thirty under thirty list of the brightest young stars in sports. That's just embarrassing. It's a bad look for the UFC. A bad look for Nike that I believe he was sponsored by at that point. You know, in 2020, he was arrested in New Mexico for alleged aggravated DWI, that's driving while intoxicated, and negligent use of a firearm. Most recently, in 2021, he was arrested in Las Vegas hours after being inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame for misdemeanor battery domestic violence. So like I said... I really wish we could have seen John Jones' career if he, like, how it would have played out if he wasn't his own worst enemy. But speaking of one being their own worst enemy, I want to pivot to a, 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 I want to pivot to the NBA because it is long overdue for us as basketball fans to have a discussion about John Morant's off-court actions. We are 45 minutes deep into this episode. We have covered a fun UFC 285 pay-per-view. I mean, now it's time to get a little serious, folks. John Morant has recently been suspended indefinitely by the Grizzlies after he was on Instagram Live brandishing a gun in the club. According to a report by Shams Charania, of the of the athletic, I believe I said his name wrong. Sharani, I'm sorry. The incident happened after Stephen Adams and the Grizzlies had a players-only meeting to discuss off-court discipline and conduct. This is just the most recent of a long list of incidences. Involving Ja Morant, I'm sorry, of incidents. I keep, I, I, it's like every time I say a sentence, I replay it in my head. I'm like, did I say that right? Or did I say that right? Did I say that right? I'm sorry. A long list of incidents involving Ja Morant. The Washington Post published a report detailing a situation where Ja showed up to a mall nine deep after his mom got into a dispute with the finish line employee and was and, and was reported to have said, let me know when he gets off of work. John Moran was also accused of punching a 17-year-old in the face and, and flashing a gun during a pickup game last summer. In January of this year, it was, report, it was reported that John Morant and his entourage aggressively confronted members of the Pacers' traveling party and someone in a slow-moving SUV that John Morant was in trained a red beam on them, 
Like this is like this is boys in the hood. Like this is a King Von music video. Like this is matter of fact, they play in Memphis, so let's better yet say this. Like this is a key Glock music video. And this is the most recent situation of Morant showing the gun off on Instagram. And this proves the saying true of where there's smoke, there's fire. People just don't say certain. When one person says something, okay. When this person says something, oh, all right. Now, when this person, like, man, all these different times where you are being accused of just, I don't want to say it, but just goon behavior. We need to have a discussion because this man is a young black athlete making millions on millions on millions of dollars. Unfathomable, unfathomable money. He's 23 years old. He is the superstar franchise player of a contending team. And he's making boneheaded decisions like this. No one else but him. He's making these decisions. He is getting into these situations. He is in these situations where these reports are coming out frequently. For those who don't know, Allen Iverson is my favorite athlete, my favorite celebrity, an icon to me. Very influential in my life. Very influential uh, uh, for style, for basketball, just to me personally. Not to mention just what he did for the game worldwide. When he was in the league, when he in his way to the league, we know we'll, we'll never forget the bowling alley incident. He had his personal battles on and off the court. He's been arrested for multiple things. DWI. Guns. Gambling. The bowling alley incident, like I stated before. He's had his personal battles on and off the court. But he took the bullet for every generation of NBA stars that came after him. Every NBA star that came after him should have seen his career and just, you know, use that as a model of what to do and what not to do. He made it cool to do, he made it cool to have the, the tattoos up and down your arms and have the cornrows and have the, the, the integrate hardcore rap into the game of uh, basketball. Because rap was always present in basketball before then, before Allen Iverson. Shaq was rapping, Kobe was rapping. But it was more so of like the, on the Will Smith line of hip hop. Alan Iverson made a, 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 a rap track called 40 Bars. He made a rap song called 40 Bars that, that the NBA, David Stern in the NBA didn't even let him release due to how, you know, degrading it was, like how hardcore it was, like how real it was. It was, it was too real for the NBA. And now look, we got Miles Bridges literally rap, uh, dropping drill songs talking about the same thing that Allen Iverson said 20 years ago. Right? So 
why Ja Morant, who was compared to Allen Iverson, who is compared rather, why he doesn't understand that you can be a great player, you can have your swag, and you can enjoy this music, but you don't have to participate in the same activities. Drop the gangster lifestyle. You are making hundreds of millions of dollars. You just inked a deal with Nike. You just inked a deal with Powerade. This is generational money that you're gambling away. This is not normal behavior. I don't get it. I don't understand. And, and what's is so much more baffling to me too. John Murray has a three-year-old daughter. Three years old. And this is the type of behavior that he's showing. I'm not saying he's a bad father. I'm not saying that he is a bad person. Right? He hasn't been arrested or convicted for anything. So he's going, like, he, he is innocent until proven guilty for anything that he does. But when you do something as blatant and as idiotic as brandishing a gun, flashing off a gun on Instagram Live, when you know that you are a professional athlete, you know the NBA don't play with that gun stuff. You saw what happened with Gilbert Arenas and, and um, Javon, what, what's that man's name? Critton, something, whatever that man's name is that played for the Wizards. You saw what happened to them. Javar's Crittenton. You saw what happened to them. They got suspended for a while. You know? So, like, it's not just what, like, <laughs> you know that these folks don't play with that gun stuff, so why are you over here flashing it on camera? Why are you hanging around these same folks that are going to be encouraging this behavior? Look, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real, real serious, real, like I'm going to drop some real stuff right now. You, John Morant, are a multi-million dollar athlete. Your friends aren't. Your associates aren't. So in, if anything happens with the law pertaining to drugs or guns or anything illegal of the sort, they're going to be looking at you to take the fall. Why? Because you can get bailed out. You got money to bail yourself out. You got a future. Your homies, their future is with you. And I don't know them personally, but they, the, whoever you're hanging around can't be very good for you if they are letting you do this. Because we're not seeing this with these other superstars in the league. We don't see Trey Young hanging around goons or Anthony Edwards hanging around goons or, or, or Giannis. Flashing guns. Even when you're on the bench, you're over here firing off shots. This obsession with guns. Like, bro, I'm telling you what's going to happen. If anything, we're going to, because it's, it's starting to get close to that point where it's going to be something serious. 
is going to happen from you and your actions off the court. Whether that's beefing with the wrong person or flashing that gun at the wrong person. Right? Getting arrested for 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 uh, illegal firearms. Whether that's with you being in a car with somebody that has them or you having them. You are an athlete, not a rapper. You see what happens to these rappers that do this stuff. We listen to the music. We enjoy the music. My favorite artists are trap artists. So I, you know, I know what, what how I, I listen to what they're saying with the drugs and the guns and the women and the cars and the lifestyle that they live in. But you're a professional athlete. You're making way more money than them. You are 23 years old. Why are you so ready to crash out? Pulling up nine deep to a mall to intimidate a security guard and an employee? Flashing a, uh, allegedly flashing a gun at a 17-year-old and punching him in the face because of a pickup game? There are some folks that just don't play that mess. Don't run, in, don't run into those folks. Control your emotions. And now look at you. Now, that's just the personal side of it. Now, look at you as a leader. Look at you as a superstar player of your team. You're putting your team in a tough, tough, tough position. Number two in the West right now. You're tied in wins with the Sacramento Kings. But you're number two in the West right now with championship hopes. But you, John Morant, the superstar player who is being paid superstar money, who has superstar expectations, is now suspended for an indefinite amount of time due to your own stupidity. Your teammate, Brandon Clark, just suffered a season-ending Achilles tear. Dylan Brooks has like 16 technicals this season. He already got suspended for going over the limit. You know that Jaron Jackson has and, and, and Desmond Bain has been in and out of the lineups this year. You're selling yourself short. It's disappointing. It's upsetting. Because you're supposed to be the face of the league. You got the swag. You got the athleticism. You got the 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 the, the ability to be the face of the league. You know, the, the NBA is all the NBA and all of these different uh, marketers are going to prefer a player like you over a player like Luka, over a player like Jokic. It's just the truth. You're more entertaining to watch from a, a purely spectacle point of uh, uh, perspective. So, and, and you're just ready to throw that all away. We've seen Miles Bridges throw his career away. And, and just going back to that Allen Iverson comparison, we know, like I said, he's made some bad. I, I, I'm reading his, I read his book, his, his uh, biography. 
He's been through some stuff. He's done some stuff. But one thing you couldn't take away from him is that he was a winner. MVP under his name. He made it to the finals. He's uh, multiple scoring titles. So he was a headache to deal to coach. He was a, 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 a headache to coach. It was always something off the court. But he was winning games. So it was worth putting up the headache. He was bringing in a lot of revenue. He was the face of the league. As much as David Stern probably didn't like it, he was his face of the league. You haven't won anything. In fact, the Grizzlies are the most hated team in the league due partially to you. John Morant and the Grizzlies aren't hated because of their dominance as a team. It's not because they're just so good that we want to see them lose or, or a play or, or fans want to see them lose. The Grizzlies are hated because of the constant headlines coming out of that franchise. From John Morant's league, you know, he's trying to be uh, the doctor of thugonomics to Dylan Brooks' league-wide reputation as a dirty player and a nuisance to uh to and a nuisance to others. To the Shannon Sharp courtside incident that happened a few months ago between him, between he and T. Moran and the Grizzlies bench. It's always something dramatic coming out of Memphis. That's why the league hates you. Y'all talk all this trash. Y'all haven't won anything. There's always headlines coming out of that out of the franchise. Get it together because you're gambling with your career. You're gambling with generational money that only comes. Guess why they call it generational money? Once a generation. Get some real folks behind you. I don't want to hear nothing about the Grizzlies don't have any vets. The Grizzlies don't want, you know, the, the, the coach. Nah, bro. That's not no vet thing. That is a personal team Problem for John Morant, I'm, I'm saying, not the Grizzlies. Whether that's his, his his father needs to talk some sense into him, his mama, his home, like he needs to clear out his homeboys and find some real people that have his long-term interest in mind. Build an empire. Don't crash out when you just getting started. That's it on that, man, bro, before I get too heated. I, I want to talk about Derek Carr, the former franchise quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders. He has signed a four-year, $150 million contract with $100 million of guaranteed money. It's gonna be, that's an interesting pickup. Well, did I, he signed to the New Orleans Saints. Derek Carr is a New Orleans Saint. It's an interesting pickup for the Saints, as I believe Derek Carr would be most needed on a team who are a decent quarterback away from a championship run. Uh, the Jets were in contention. I believe Miami was as well. 
Uh, I think the 49ers were as well. I don't think the 49ers took it too seriously. But I believe that their name was thrown in to the Derek Carr sweepstakes, if you want to call it that. But, you know, the Saints, in my opinion, my very unbiased opinion, (laughs) have many more issues on hand that are preventing them from being a Super Bowl contender. But I guess they believe their chance to win a championship window can be achieved during the duration of Carr's contract. Because that's a lot of money. And that's a long-term deal. Um, But he's undoubtedly the best quarterback that that sorry-ass franchise has had since Drew Brees. But as stated before, the Saints have plenty of more problems to hash out before the Derek Carr acquisition can bear any serious fruits. Michael Thomas's future is in limbo after several injury-ridden seasons. They have a suspect O-line. They were ranked 28th in the league by Pro Football Focus as far as their O-line is concerned. Alvin Kamara, he's currently involved in a felony battery case stemming from charges that he and three others beat a man unconscious at a Las Vegas nightclub last year in February before the Pro Bowl. He recently pled not guilty and could face trial in late July. But that just adds on to, you know, just the questions surrounding the Saints. So with all of these factors in mind, I believe that a full rebuild should have been in place for the Saints. You know, join the Falcons in this hell that we're experiencing right now. You know, I mean, I believe it's going to pay off. We got to, I think we're ranked top three in amount of cap space that we have for this upcoming free agency. Meanwhile, the Saints are ranked bottom three. I think they're ranked like number 30. In cap space, They're like negative twenty four million. But like I said, I'm gonna be honest and say that yes, this move keeps them competitive in an already mediocre NFC South. The Panthers they don't have a QB. The Falcons Desmond Ritter is going to be getting his first career. Well, presumably he'll be getting his first career starts for the Falcons, but there is no telling. I've heard reports that maybe the Falcons will draft Anthony Richardson with the eighth pick if he falls so far. You know, but uh, the Buccaneers, Tom Brady is retired. And if he does come back, I know he's not going back to Tampa Bay. So the Buccaneers don't have a quarterback. The Saints went 7-10 with Andy Dalton as QB. They have a top they had a top 10 scoring defense last season, which is a reason why they won most of those games or at least were in contention to win most of those games. Chris Olave, he's a stud receiver. He reeled in a 1042 yards and four touchdowns as a rookie. They have some other good uh, receivers like Raheem Shahid. But I still don't think that Derek Carr was a worthy signing. You know, another reason why the signing confused me because they were way over the salary cap. You know, like you're not you're gonna have to you don't have to get under that salary cap by the time free agency starts. I know that they managed to sign Carr by releasing and restructuring the deals of some players' contracts, but was it really worth it? Or do 
do y'all seriously think that the Saints are going to be able to turn that roster into a championship contender during the duration of Derek Carr's four-year, $150 million contract with $100 million in guaranteed money? So I don't know. I don't think so. But that is what we're going to be heading into the new season with. He is the best quarterback of the NFC South right now. Free agency hasn't started yet. But with that being said, we'll see how it goes. I don't expect much when he plays us. Because, you know, when the Falcons and the Saints play, you already know how that's going to go. I don't got to say too much about that. I don't care who's that quarterback. I don't care if it was uh, uh, Drew Brees. I don't care if it was Derek Carr. I don't care if it's Joe goddamn Montana. You already know how it's going to be when we play. And we going for the season. Sweet, baby. But that's it for the biggest stories that I had to talk to y'all today for the Hear Me Roar podcast. But before we head out, I do have some big news to announce to y'all. I'm not sure why I haven't said it earlier. But this Friday, I'll be entering the cage for a championship Muay Thai fight. This Friday, March 10th at the Battery, right next to where the Braves play at Truist Park, I'll be fighting Seth Haas for the Bantamweight NFC Muay Thai Championship. I'm so excited. All right, this is a big fight, something I've been training for for a long time, something that I've been anticipating for a long time. Um, I'm currently 4-0 as an amateur Muay Thai kickboxer. And this is going to be my first ever championship fight I used to wrestle in high school um, but I never made it to anything significant like state or even regionals I think the farthest I made it was like sectionals which is a it's the stage right before regionals so I never won anything super significant as an athlete but let me tell y'all this come this Friday March 10th at the battering Right next to the truest part, home of the Atlanta Braves, I, Tony Hope, will be walking out with a championship wrapped around my waist. I can promise you that. It's going to be a great fight. I'm going to be posting the link to my tickets on my story. If you can come out and support, please do so because I promise you, you're not going to want to miss this moment. I've been training so hard for this. Seth Haas is a great fighter. He is a strong striker. I say strong boxer. So it's going to be very interesting to see how I can deal with his hooks, with his hands. But it's something that I've been training for. It's something that I'm not intimidated by. It is something that I am more than ready and willing to put my body on the line for. I'm currently cutting weight. I have to get down to at least 135 by this Thursday. I'm on pace to make that weight. I'm not concerned about that part. I don't feel sluggish. I don't feel tired. In fact, I feel the best I've ever been. Just from a technical standpoint, from a conditioning standpoint, from a fight IQ standpoint, it's like I just know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay long. I'm going to stay at my range, I'm going to control 
the pace of this fight by not letting him intrude my space. Because I know I can brawl. I know I can fight. I'm tough. I don't mind getting hit a couple times and then giving it right back to you ten times harder. But I don't want it to, to, to dissolve into that. I don't like watching fights that are just straight up brawls, no, no type of technique. Or at least I don't like when they start that way. This is a five-round fight, two minutes each. So I'm going to make sure I pace myself during this fight. I'm going to make sure that I don't blow my gas tank in the early rounds because I'm preparing for a war. And one thing about me is that when I prepare for a war, just like I did for my last fight, I will be walking out as a victor. I'll be walking out as a better man. And in this instance, I'll be walking out as a champion. So like I said, follow me on Instagram at two-tone underscore 69. That is at the number two, T-O-N-E underscore 69. I will be posting a link to my fight to buy tickets for my fight on my story. Please come out and support. I'd really appreciate it. And it will be entertaining for y'all to watch. That's the main reason why I want y'all to come out is because I want y'all to see why I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about UFC. Why I know what I'm talking about when I talk about mixed martial arts. I want to show y'all how good I am. I don't want to just talk to y'all. I don't want to just tell y'all. I want to show y'all. So come out and support. It's going to be fun. And y'all going to see y'all boy get the job done in an amazing fashion. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of the Hear Me Roar podcast. This will be the final episode before the fight. Next Tuesday, I will be talking to you all about the UFC fight night card between Peter Yan and uh, who else? Mahab Divashili. And of course, I'll be talking to y'all about how I became the NFC Muay Thai bantamweight champion next Tuesday as well. So be on the lookout for that. I appreciate y'all for listening. Let me know your thoughts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the number two, T-O-N-E underscore 69. That's at two-tone underscore 69. And with that, I'm out. I'll catch y'all next Tuesday.